in the New Testament, if you would. And as you're turning there, I just wanted to say as, as a note that we're three weeks away from our fall kickoff, and I, I hope that you are praying about uh, getting excited and getting involved in a home care group. We're going to talk a little bit more about that as the time draws close. But we have uh, young people that are graduating, moving up uh, in classes in Sunday school. And with all the things that are happening, uh, we just need to be in prayer for each other as a church family. And uh, again, looking forward to that day. It was also good this morning, wasn't it, to see Natalie uh, singing back up here and encouraging to have her as part of the worship team always. So, uh, well, for the last three weeks, uh, we've been in this series, and we've been trying to slip our feet into some different shoes of people that are a whole lot like us. But they encounter Jesus face to face, and everything in life changes. In week one, we slipped our feet into a pair of flip-flops of this man named John the Baptist. This one who was unique and different, and yet humbly learned to walk through this world. And we learned that if we would just allow God to mold us, not to make us into anybody else, but if we allow him to make us into the best version of ourselves, that we would have a life of wonder and joy and fulfillment following him. And last week, uh, I challenged you to squeeze your toes into a pair of stilettos that represented a, a woman who was looking for love in all the wrong places. And we learned that God has a way of pursuing us going out of his way, reaching out to us. And we saw that how we can come to Jesus in all of our brokenness, in all of our shame, in all of our embarrassment and confusion, in all of our dysfunction and our pain, and he'll meet us right where we are as we are. And he can wipe our slate clean and give us a a brand new start and fill us up with hope and quench the thirst That's really down deep inside of us. Now today I'm really excited because we're going to talk about putting on a a pair of these. Uh, I really love uh, these work boots. They've got a little bit of history behind them. These are mine. I got these back when we were in Huntington, Indiana, and uh, Hurricane Katrina had hit down in New Orleans and along the Louisiana coast. And I was volunteering with the Red Cross, and just days after the levees broke, and the water was just inundating homes and and really whole neighborhoods, I got to put these on and go and work there. And and they've held up really good. A good pair of Columbia, you know, nice plug, right, for Columbia. I should get a discount on my next pair from them just just for that. Uh, But I love to put these on and wear them to clump around and do my yard work. I love working with, with wood and the, have sawdust all over me or, or cutting down trees and, and having all the sweat and stuff. It's just something that I get a lot of personal satisfaction out of. And today we're going to put our feet into a pair of work boots of a blue-collar guy. He's just this hardworking dude, just this tough guy, military guy actually, who really understood what sweat equity and authority were all about. Now, when I use the word authority, what do you think about? What what comes to mind for you? What kind of people come to mind? Maybe police? Maybe the principal at at your school or your teachers? uh, Maybe the president? Maybe the governor, the mayor? uh, Maybe your supervisor? Or a boss that you have? Maybe your mom or your dad? Authority. 
And the Bible is really clear on our response to those in authority over us. It says in Romans 13, verse 5, Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities, not because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. God says, I want your conscience to be clean. Peter, the wild child apostle, he would write this in 1 Peter 2.13, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors that are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. So unless that authority is telling us to do something, That's contrary to God's law. We are to submit to those in authority. Now, sometimes it is contrary to what God has already made it very clear that he wants for us to be or do. And it's difficult in that time, you know, to to live up to what does God want us to do. And and we face times, maybe uh, it's a boss that asks you to participate in in some kind of lie or a cover-up. Or a coach might tell you to break the rules. And in those cases, you always have to go with what God tells you to do over what other people are telling you to do. Christians, we're to be people that have a courageous backbone. We're to have a faithful, strengthened backbone and be like the believers in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, where we're told that Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. We should never just follow blindly. But for the most part, you and I are to live with an attitude of submission to those who are in authority over us. Now, the original word for authority, and this was really driven home to me the last couple of days, is as we've watched, uh, regardless of how you feel about his politics, John McCain passed away at the age of 81, and he was a military serviceman par exemplis. I mean, he was a man who, as a POW, served this country, and the Bible says... Greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friend. So when I'm thinking about a military term, I'm picturing his sacrifice. And this is a word in the Bible that literally means this. Submit means to voluntarily place yourself under. To voluntarily place yourself under someone else's authority. And I've got to admit, that's not always easy to do, is it? To voluntarily place yourself under someone else's authority. I mean, if you get a ticket that you don't feel you, you deserved, and you still, right, you have to go to traffic school. Or you have to pay the IRS this unreasonably high tax bill. Or you get your property taxes in the mail, and it just seems like they only go one direction, just up and up. Or the umpire or the referee totally blows the call. Or your parents set for you a curfew that you think is just totally unreasonable. Or the corporate higher-ups give you an organizational chart that's restructured your position within the company. And now your supervisor over you has so much less experience than you has so much less you know, work ability and is less qualified than you are. And it's tough sometimes to voluntarily place yourself under someone else's authority. But that's what we're called to do. Now let me just say something to those of you that are in a position of authority. Just because you have a position that might be over people, it doesn't 
automatically mean that you're a great leader. You see, the real evidence behind authority, it's not the position. It's your disposition. It's the way you treat people. You see, usually the way we, we equate authority with, with people is with structure, with organizational charts and power, with intimidation and manipulation and respect for a title that's demanded. But real authority, it doesn't work that way. Let me show you the way I think real authority just naturally flows. Now, this is the way most people see it. Maybe the place that you work, maybe your own family, the place that you live. But the belief is this. I am at the top of the list. I'm an authority over you. Therefore, I'm going to hold you accountable. There's some accountability for your performance. And if you perform well, well, then I may offer you the third thing on that list, affirmation. Maybe I'll give you some some extra pay. Maybe I'll give you an extra day off or another week of vacation. Maybe I'll give you a pat on the back or an girl or an attaboy. Or maybe if you feel enough affirmation, you might even feel accepted. You might feel acceptance, but really, in this world, that's just between you and your therapist because most people stop caring after the second thing on that list, accountability. Because you performed, you did your job, the rest of it really isn't that important. And most of the world, they deal with people according to the bottom line. And you know that's the way a lot of people lead. A lot of people try to lead others by the top-down method. Just kind of, you know, you read the employee handbook, read your job description, read the organizational chart. It says that I'm above you and you need to get in line. Now, has anybody here ever been led by a leader like that? Raise your hand for me. Okay. Yeah. Now, let me ask you this. How do you think the greatest leader that ever walked this planet, how do you think he led? How do you think he looked at at other people? He who possessed all the rights, who had all the authority. In fact, he said it in Matthew 28. All the authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. The one who really is at the top of the organizational chart. The one who is overall, how do you think Jesus led people? He actually started from the bottom and worked up. He actually flipped things upside down or, as the case may be, right side up. He would always accept people for who they were, exactly where they were. He would affirm them as people of great worth in his eyes and in the sight of God. And once they felt that they were accepted and affirmed by him, then they were wide open to the accountability and many of them would even accept his authority by calling him Lord. You see, you can force some kind of external accountability through threats and intimidation, but most people, they won't respond in a healthy way unless they first know that they are affirmed and accepted as people of great worth. And I I don't know, maybe that's a good word for some of you parents to hear today. Maybe that's a good word for some of you grandparents to hear. Maybe coaches or elders and deacons in this church. In, In fact, did you know that many corporate leaders today, they're finally starting to acknowledge that Jesus of Nazareth really was the greatest leader who ever walked this planet. Nobody leads, nobody led like Jesus.
Real leaders understand authority. And, and they say, listen, I'm not so concerned with this organizational chart. I'm here to facilitate your success. I'm here to serve you. I'm here to pour myself into you. I want you to become the best version of you that you can be. You see, many people have the position of authority, but real authority, it's given. Real authority, it it is so easy to recognize. Remember in Scripture when Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount? You know, in Matthew 5-7, through the greatest sermon that's ever been recorded. And when this message was over, it said of Jesus in Matthew 7-28, it said, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. In fact, there is, there is no instances wherever in the Gospels where Jesus demanded respect. There was no earthly title of position. He didn't walk around with a badge that says, I'm the Messiah, I'm number one. He never flashed his God credentials and said, you have to follow me, and I demand it. But he recognized people as the creation of God. And it was his credibility, his character that showed them what his authority really was. And that's how it works between Jesus and this work boot wearing soldier. And I've had you turn with me to Luke chapter 7. And I want to see together his story. It's just 10 verses. But he just finished that famous Sermon on the Mount that we just talked about. And it says this in Luke 7 verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is going to become the center for, or his headquarters for, his, his ministry in Galilee. And there a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick. And he was about to die. Now, just a quick word of explanation. If you don't know what a centurion is, that's not a person who's 100 years old, okay? That's... That's a, um, that's a person who's 100 years old. I forget the word. Anyway, uh, but this guy, he's a Roman military officer. His rank would be comparatively somewhere between a, a colonel and a captain. And he's in command of 80 to 100 legionnaires. 100 battle-tested, trained soldiers. Hence the word centurion. He's a military man. He knows how the chain of command works. He knows how authority works. And he's worked his way up the ranks in the military. In this highly structured Roman military that he's a part of. Now look at verse 3. The centurion heard of Jesus. And he sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and to heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this. Because he loves our nation and he has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. Now last week when we talked about uh, the major rift, the animosity that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. They didn't like each other. uh, And that's putting it mildly. I mean, they couldn't stand one another. And they couldn't agree on anything except for how much they both hated the Romans. 
You see, they hated all who represented Rome's presence and, and domination and authority. And Roman soldiers, they were especially notorious for powering up on people and for flaunting their control. In fact, there were people known as the Sicari, the Sicario in the crowds, dagger men who would sneak up in crowds of people just to, to take a poke at, to stab these Roman soldiers and then disappear into the crowd. That's how much they despise them. But this guy is different. You see, this soldier, this is a good man. They see him as this community-minded bridge builder. And they say, Jesus, this man, he has been good and kind to us. He loves our nation. He deserves for you to do this for him. He's uncommonly respected by these Jewish leaders of the town. And I think verse 2 gives a little bit of insight into why, a little bit of a clue into this man's character. Look back in verse 2 again. It said, They're a centurion's servant whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. You see, in Roman culture, slaves, they were considered as property, not people. They had the the value only in the fact that they were useful. And when they ceased being useful, like dead batteries, they were just tossed on the pile. And they would get another one. They, They were just executed, thrown aside for new ones. They had no intrinsic value as people made in the image of God. They were disposable property. But to this centurion, this humble, kind, work boot wearing captain, he saw people as people. And when it says the servant was valued highly, the word that's used there in scripture, it's the word in Greek, intimas. It's a word that means dear, precious, and value. It's the word that we get the word intimate from. Intimate. I mean, these guys were good, close friends. Which kind of gives you the clue that this man's authority, this was a man like Jesus who knew how to lead from the bottom up of that list. Now look in verse 6 with me. Verse 6 continues. So Jesus went with him, and he was not far from the house. When the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That's why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. You talk about some cool humility. This centurion says, just say the word, Jesus. I believe you're so great, you can just do it from right there. Jesus, I believe if you wanted to, you could do some drive-by healings. I mean, just say the word, and I know that he will be well. I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. I believe you can do anything. That just flows out of the heart of this Gentile, this Roman centurion, out of this guy's mouth. Verse 8, For I myself, I'm a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. He says, Jesus, I know in this world, I'm a big deal. I'm a pretty big authority. But Jesus, if, if I am who I am, and I could tell somebody to do something, and they do it, and you are who you are, and if you just say the word, I know you'll have no problem. Just say the word, and it'll be well. And that is impressive. And Jesus 
thought it was impressive too. Look what the Bible goes on to say in verse 9. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. And then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Don't miss the wonder at the ending of the story. Jesus never made it to the house. And yet this servant was in fact healed. Just like the centurion believed he would be. And as Luke is writing, he wants to make sure that we all know that Jesus does have that kind of power. But as awesome as that is, I don't even think that's the main takeaway of this encounter. I think this is. If if you'll read through all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll read each of the accounts of Jesus' life. By the way, great fall reading, right? Going into the fall here. You'll find that Jesus experiences, as our great high priest, a wide variety of emotions. You've never felt any emotion he didn't feel. He experiences sudden sympathy for a man with leprosy. He experiences anger at the cold-hearted legalist. He gets excited over his disciples and their successes. He experiences joy in the presence of, of little children. He experiences disappointment as an unreceptive Jerusalem turns from him. He experiences heart-wrenching grief over the death of a really, really close friend. Three times around his disciples, he cries in a way that you and I would say he just loses it. And then there's just the cries of anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane and from the cross. But friends, there is only two times in all of the Gospels that Jesus experiences amazement. One is in Mark 6, when Jesus goes back to his hometown. This little bitty hick town called Nazareth. And word has been spreading about his teaching and his miracles. And they get to hear him speak in person at their synagogue. And he speaks with incredible power and wisdom But they begin to say to each other, come on. I mean, who is this guy, really? That's Mary's kid. He worked on Joseph's framing crew. He framed my house. I got one of his bookcases. I got one of his chairs in my living room. Who does this guy think he is? I used to live down the street from them. And they totally reject him. And Mark 6, 6 says, Jesus He was amazed at their lack of faith. He was amazed at their lack of faith. The other time he's amazed is right here. When Jesus is amazed in a positive way at this soldier's abundance of faith. Now the New Testament was written in Koine Greek. It's an ancient language, the original language of the day. And the Greek word here for amaze, it's the word thamadzo. Thamadzo, and it means to marvel to be struck with admiration, to be impressed. Now here's a thought that I want you to consider this morning. Isn't it cool to think that the one who designed chromosomes, the one who came up with the original idea of photosynthesis, the one who made giraffes, the one who made snowflakes and all of human anatomy and all the stars and the galaxies, isn't it it wonderful that he could be amazed? Still, 
But at this moment, Jesus was amazed, struck with admiration, impressed with this guy. What does it take to impress God? What does it make, uh, take to make God step back, take a deep breath of satisfaction and go, whoa, that right there, that's amazing. Well, let me, let me let you tell him in his own words. This is God speaking in Isaiah 66, verse 2. This is the one I esteem. This is the one I'm amazed at. He who is humble and contrite in heart, who trembles at my word. Are you amazing God today? The Old Testament, the Bible, that that verse came from, in the Old Testament, it's it's written in the language of of Hebrew. And the Hebrew word used here for esteem is nabat. And nabat means to esteem, to regard with pleasure, to respect, and again, to be impressed. You see, God has always been impressed. God has always been amazed by the very same thing. He is amazed by those that are humbled, those who surrender themselves and put themselves under his authority and recognize that authority of his word. And this humble, hardworking, blue-collar, work-boot-wearing Roman soldier said, Lord, I don't deserve to have you visit my house, but you speak the word. Jesus, I respect your word. You just just breathe it out and it will be done. You see, I believed that, that he sensed in some way Jesus was the same God who spoke to the universe and said, let there be light. And there was. To a leper, be clean. To a paralyzed man, take up your mat and walk. To a raging sea, peace, be still. To a man who had been dead for four days and is lying in a cold tomb. Lazarus, come forth. He believed that Jesus could speak and anything was possible. Do you? Amen, I do to the glory of God. With God, all things are possible. I like the way that Beth Moore put this in one of her Bible studies. She said this, Christ's word is action. What he commands, he accomplishes. That's a fact. What impresses Christ, however, is when we believe it's a fact. And this humble man believed, and he's impressed. I thought it was kind of an interesting contrast with what the leaders said about this, this man and what he said about himself to Jesus. Did you catch it? Did you catch how the leaders come to Jesus in verse 4? And they try to convince him. Jesus, this man, he deserves to have you do this. But the centurion himself said, Lord, don't trouble yourself. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve to have you come into my house. I mean, one group tries to, to kind of push his authority. But the other just recognized it. Friends, I hope you're recognizing through all of these shoes stories whether we're talking about flip-flops or stilettos or work boots or next week what we talk about, I hope you realize that what pleases and what impresses Jesus is humility and courage. Or humility and courageous surrender. It's been a common thread through all of these disciple stories. With John the Baptist, it was when we heard him say, you know what, I'm not the man. Jesus is. He must increase, I must decrease. I don't even deserve to bow down and unlace his sandals. 
The thirsty woman at the well that we talked about last week, she had the humility and the courage to run back into town to the very people she was trying to avoid by being at the well at noon. And she said, you've got to come out. You've got to come out and see this man. He's told me everything about myself. I, I think the Messiah, he's sitting at our well. Both of them, including the centurion, they recognized greatness. They recognized real authority when they saw it. I'm telling you, only true humility will allow you to see the authority of Jesus as your Savior and Lord. Philip Yancey wrote a great book. Uh, If you're just starting to study the life of Christ, you know, obviously, read the Bible. Nothing replaces God's word. You know, heaven and earth is going to pass away. His word never passes away. But if you want a book to read along with it that's great about the life of Christ, Phil Gancy wrote this book called The Jesus I Never Knew, and I'd recommend it. But he said this. He said, Jesus, he never met a disease he could not cure, a birth defect he could not reverse, a demon he could not exercise. But he did meet skeptics that he could not convince and sinners that he could not convert. Forgiveness of sins requires an act of the will on the receiver's part. And some who heard Jesus' strongest words about grace and forgiveness turned away unrepentant. See, the forgiveness of sin, friends, the transformation of a life, it depends on an act of humility. Some who heard the most engaging, most exciting and amazing words of Jesus about the love of God and new starts. People who, who witnessed miraculous things right in their presence, right under their noses. They still turned away, unchanged, unrepentant and lost for eternity because they were stubborn and they were proud and they wanted to run their own life the way they wanted to run it. You see, even though faith can produce all kinds of miracles, miracles don't necessarily produce faith. A lot of people who experienced the the miracles of Jesus ended up walking away from him. In fact, one time, he fed over 5,000 men, plus women and children, with two little fish and five loaves of bread. He literally had them eating out of his hand. And then he started talking about what it means to follow him. That it means denying yourself and and picking up your cross and following him daily. What it means to, to count the cost. What it means to place yourself under the loving hand of God voluntarily. They literally, though, at that point had their fill of miracles. And yet they walked away and said, I'm not up for that. I want to maintain the control and call the shots All I want is to do that on a a belly that's been filled by God. They weren't willing to humble themselves and courageously surrender to to God's leadership. And gang, as we close this morning, I've got to say, I've met tons of people like that. I've met tons of people that have encountered the truth and the, the wonder of God and walked away. And I'm not claiming to be perfect. I realize in my life, You know, I've still got a long way to go. But every day, I try to re-surrender my life and place myself under the authority of Jesus Christ as my Lord. 
to not be so wrapped up in myself that I become self-destructive. You know, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I have walked through Barnes & Noble, a bookstore down in, in Beaver Creek across from the Fairfield Mall, and I just have to chuckle to myself when I see the, the section called self-help. If self could help self, it already would. The fact is, self cannot help self. We need Jesus. And in the words of the old song, when will the world recognize that? When will the world see that we need Jesus? Friends, if you have a decision on your heart this morning, maybe in your blue-collar, work-boot-wearing life, you realize it's time to place yourself under the authority of the one that truly has all authority. It's time to let him not just be your Savior, but to be your Lord and call the shots in your life. You will experience a wonderful life that you never could apart from him. Friends, he's the one that has plans to prosper you, to give you success, to give you a hope and a future without the stumbling, if you'll just follow him. Would you stay with me this morning? And let me pray for us before we sing our last song. And if you have a decision as we sing, I want you to come and share that. Maybe it's for salvation. Maybe it's to humble yourself and enter the waters of baptism. Maybe you've held back for some reason. And friends, it's the one thing standing between you and the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. But pride has just pulled you back saying, ah, you don't need to do this. Jesus said you do. The disciples gave the example, you do. Maybe it's to humble yourself and say in in your marriage, you know what, pride's been calling the shots for too long, but Jesus, he's my Lord. I'm going to follow what he says. Or with your children or grandchildren or one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you created us. You gave us the life that, that we are blessed to have. And you didn't leave us without instruction. You didn't leave us without example. You sent your son who came not to be served, not to power up on us. But you sent your son to serve, to seek, and to save the lost. Oh, Father, we're seeking. We want to be like him. Father, would you just lead us into that next level of engagement with you? Whether it's to start the relationship, whether it's to build on it from this point. Father, as we pray about the the Bible studies are going to be starting in three weeks, maybe it's finally to, to get involved, to get deeper into your word with others. Together we can be the kingdom that you've created us to be part of. Alone, Father, we face challenges that we were never meant to bear alone. We can't do all the one another's. We can't bear one another's grief if we don't get together. So, Father, if that's a decision, would you just continue to work in the hearts of your people? And, Father, we glorify you in any decisions that's made today. In Jesus' name, amen.